In this special episode, we're joined by Professor Dwayne Dunstan, an expert in cybersecurity. Welcome to Copec Explained Software, the podcast where we make computing intelligible. This week, we're privileged to be joined by a great guest. It's my colleague from Champlain College, Dwayne Dunstan, who's an associate professor of cybersecurity at beautiful Champlain College here in Burlington, Vermont. He has decades of experience in the field, both as a practitioner and as an educator. He works with multiple nonprofits to further cybersecurity education and fight human trafficking. His writings and commentary have been featured in both local and national media. Dwayne, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. So, Dwayne, let's start with a really basic question. What is cybersecurity? Cybersecurity is the protecting the digital assets of an organization of, or of your home computers. And essentially what you're doing is protecting the information you have and also protecting the device from being used for unauthorized purposes as well as a, as a rough um, definition. And so when we think about cybersecurity, what are the biggest threats? Oh, that is a, that's a big question because the threats that we have are very well known and have been around for a long time, such as the probably, probably the most egregious threat is not updating your system, meaning not applying any security updates to your computer system. And the most confusing or difficult part about that process is is generally people's lack of understanding as to what is meant by an update, what is meant by a patch, for example. For example, on Microsoft Windows or Mac OS, Linux, you get a pop-up message stating that there are software updates available. And so you click on that little button and then you do updates and your computer may restart or you may have automatic updates and you wake up in the morning and your computer has restarted. And people may think that all the software on their computer is updated because they purchase a computer and it comes with all the software. And when they see a software update, they think everything is updated. However, the software updates don't include third-party applications. And those third-party applications are programs like Chrome because Chrome is, a, is not a product that's created by Microsoft or Mac OS um, or, or Apple, excuse me, or Linux. Um, Linux um, vendors. So you have to ensure that that product is being updated. Now, Chrome is known to have its own built-in updates. So you can generally use Chrome without having to worry about having to apply a specific update to it. But other applications such as a PDF reader like Adobe, for example, that's not updated automatically um, if, if you didn't enable it to. So you have to manually in provide updates to it. And that can become difficult because when you buy a new computer, it may come with a lot of third-party software programs. And as a average home user, having to keep up with all that can be difficult and probably a bit onerous. People don't want to deal with it. Or they assume that that software update and when their computer restarted or that pop-up message uh, appeared and they clicked the, the message, they think that it's updating all the software on their computer when it's not the case. And so that's probably the probably the number one threat vector 
And by vector, I mean method in which uh, someone is able to inject a malicious, malicious code. So what it sounds like is that a big part of cybersecurity uh, for a user is really learning how to protect themselves Correct. from the stuff that can be out there and having an understanding of the different software that's on their computer is going to be really important to be able to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, vendors or some organization needs to or should become better at including some type of third-party program that can help people with managing those third-party applications. So if Dell sells a computer and it comes with Microsoft Windows on it and it comes with all these third-party software programs, there I think there should be some software program that they include that can alert them to when that third-party application needs to be updated as part of the, the package of what they purchased. And there are organizations that have that type of, of capabilities where they can monitor computer systems and then provide alerts when there are updates that are that are needed for it. Um, so that could help really reduce the, a significant number of vulnerabilities. And then at the same time, in the same breath, I say that an update can break production systems because that update may not just be a security update. It may be a feature update as well, and it may break a application or process that someone has running or within an organization. So that has to be done systematically and very carefully as well with an option to roll back if necessary. Software updates is is a significant issue. The other is having antivirus programs. And an antivirus program is going to routinely scan your computer system and also it scans software or applications and files as they're being used, as they're open on your system, whether you know it or not. And ensuring that your antivirus program is receiving updates on a daily basis, because there are, there are just that many uh, malicious <laughs> code variants and new malicious code being introduced every single day. So you have to have those daily updates. And then third-party tools like um, SpyBot, for example, or malwarebytes that can be used to scan your system on a routine basis to find additional pieces of malicious code that exist out there. Being aware of the sites you surf to is hard because you're, you know, we, you know, we are here at home. We want to learn how to do some crafts. We want to learn how to, you know, like I'm learning about spices, for example. This is my, my New Year's goal is to become a, a spice connoisseur, if you will. <laughs> and you know, we don't know the reputation of the sites that we're looking at because this is new to us. So, you know, it, it's hard to tell people to be careful what site you click on. Well, what criteria is there? So any antivirus program you purchase, I would suggest ensuring it has a, a feature that can scan for known malicious websites so that it can just block access to those sites to help mitigate the types of threats that can be um, injected into a website such as downloading malicious code, for example, and then running it on, on your system. Can you define malicious code for our listeners? Yes. Um, malicious code is a software program that is written with, with the specific purpose of either doing damage to a computer system, stealing information from your computer, or performing some action that you didn't authorize it to perform. 
So how do these threats differ for a large organization versus an individual user, like maybe one of our listeners? So is there a difference? Do they approach the problem differently? Do they use the same tools? And that question, again, is is multifaceted because for a large organization, the scale in which it could uh, cause impact is significant. For example, in the news right now is the big SolarWinds compromise, where Malicious actors believed to be a nation state, a nation state meaning a, uh, a foreign government was, in, was involved. They were able to inject malicious code into the process in which an application was being built, ready for distribution. And this application called SolarWinds is being used by I mean, organizations all around the world, including government agencies. And so, and, big, and large corporations like Microsoft were impacted. Department of Treasury, uh, Department of Homeland Security, they all had this malicious software inside their organization. And the type of information that they have is very sensitive. So the damage that can be done can be pretty significant to national security, for example. In the case of Microsoft, if they were able to, there's no evidence they did, but if they were able to inject malicious code into a Microsoft product, the impact could be catastrophic because their updates are being pushed out around the world. So imagine having a backdoor in virtually most of the computers on the planet, for example. Uh, and at the individual level, for you know your, your home user who just surfing the web, checking email, you know, maybe have a social media account, for example, or upload photos, things like that. While the impact could be relatively low, it could certainly depend on what that malicious code was was doing or what that um, adversary wanted. Did they want access to their computer system to store other malicious code? Did they want access to store adult content or other illegal content? Are they storing using their computer to store malicious files? Because today you have you can go to you know any store virtually and buy a new computer that has a quad-core CPU, which is a very fast processor. It's like having four separate processors that are, are managing tasks on your computer and over a terabyte of hard drive space. And a terabyte hard drive space is roughly, you know, about the size of a, of a library of, of books, roughly. So that can be malicious code in your computer, and you never know it because it's using such little memory <laughs> because of how fast computers are. And so depending on the kind of information that individual has on their computer, it could be uh, pretty dramatic. There are a lot of people working from home, for example, and they're using a VPN to gain access into their computer system at their work. Now, this is important to understand here because we talk about things like multi-factor authentication, such as uh, which, which is having a username and password, something you know, the first factor, and then... The second factor is usually a code that is sent to your cell phone or to a, a third part or to a hardware device that you may have. Sometimes it's sent via email, which is not a good idea. Once you log in to a remote system, if someone already has access to your computer system, they can gain access to that remote system. It's, so so that they don't need to access or try to get to your, your second factor, your phone or to your, you know, second factor authentication device. All they need access to is your computer system. So someone who's working from home and then log into their work 
If someone has access to their home computer, they can then get access into their work computer. So it's important to understand that, those kind of things. So there's really quite a difference, in tr- as you mentioned, in terms of scale. And we hear about things like the solar wind story. And I'm wondering what kind of jobs are involved in protecting a large organization like Microsoft from a threat. So, so w- what are the names of the roles and what kind of expertise do the people who work on, on, on these problems have? So the different roles you have are the system administrators, and the system administrators are those who set up the computer systems and servers, and they manage those. They manage the day-to-day operations. They ensure that all these services that are needed are running, and that any information that needs to flow back and forth is flowing uh, without without any any problems. And you have your your risk. Well, you know it, it's hoped that organizations are performing. Uh, risk assessments, which is a routine process in which you are trying to determine what your risks are, what your threats are before the bad bad guys do. And that way you can start to put in controls or security controls that can help to mitigate those threats, um, prevent the likelihood of those from actually being exploited. And exploited exploitation is a, a method of taking advantage of a vulnerability in a system. And then you have your cybersecurity analysts or your security officers, they're the ones who are ensuring that all the computers have the appropriate security security controls in place. And there is some overlap with the system administrator and the security um, analyst, and that is the monitoring and reviewing of system logs or system events. And a uh, system event is something that occurs on a computer system at a given point in time. And there are services that are generating these these logs and events and the security analyst and a system admin are monitoring those to look for signs of maybe someone trying to gain access to files and folders they shouldn't have access to or someone trying to guess passwords for example and the security um, officer also may have a system in place called a uh, intrusion detection system where they are looking for, which is a, a software program that has a database of known threat signatures and methods, and it looks for signs of that being perpetuated on the network. And it generates alerts <clears throat> that has to have to be investigated whenever something, uh, whenever alert is generated that, that looks significant enough to, to warrant an investigation to determine if it's legit or, or a false positive. False positive meaning it looks like an event, but it's not. It's not. It's not really. Um, for example, a false positive: someone trying to log into a computer and they mistype the IP address, and it looks like a bunch of failed login attempts, like someone trying to brute force or guess a password. But when you look look into it, you say, "Oh, that person just typed the wrong address, so they didn't mean to do that kind of thing." Um, so that would be a false positive. And then you have your network administrators, your network admins. They're the ones who manage and create the the infrastructure that allows information and data to flow through the organization. It's like the the blood, <laughs> if you will, for your your um, your body. Um, all the network devices, all the cables that are being run from computers from different floors to get access to the internet. Those are are your network administrators. 
a large organization may have a firewall engineer, and they're the person who are monitoring the external the external access into and out of the organization. And they may also be managing firewalls on each individual computer system as well and on, on servers. Hmm. And so uh, it is a huge job to keep an organization <laughs> secure and yes. safe. Yes. Security a is lot of- security is hard. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. And there are many there are many specialties as well. There are some people who just do firewall engineering. There are some folks who are your generalists who are um, security analysts. You have folks who do incident response. So when something actually occurs, your incident responders are going to perform an analysis to determine what happened, how, maybe who, and what what to do to mitigate this or prevent it from occurring in the future. Yeah. So does that mean there are many other types of jobs? Some people just um, analyze malicious software to determine what it's doing. Uh, pen testers, people who are hired to try to hack into an organization. And blue team, they don't hack in per se. They go into an organization, help them identify their security vulnerabilities. So yes, there's a lot of different occupations and a lot of, a lot of aspect moving parts to it as well. How have you seen the field of cybersecurity evolve over time? I imagine that there's been lots of evolving as we rely more and more on the devices and the software that we're using. And then again, now with everyone working remotely, that, that this is a field that's like continually having to change and adapt. I gave a TED Talk back in 2019, and really the premise of it is the fact that a lot of the vulnerabilities and methods in which computer systems are compromised have been known for 30 plus years. And those are still occurring. Uh, if anything, potentially the methods for identifying attacks and the technology that's used to aggregate logs from hundreds or thousands of systems to, uh, to, to tell a story, essentially to help do the analysis for, for people. Because if you are a team like a SOC, a security operations center, and you're monitoring the computer systems for dozens of organizations, you're going to need assistance with, with, uh, uh, with um, analyzing all those logs. Humans just can't do, do that kind of analysis on our own. So we're relying on algorithms and in some cases, artificial intelligence to know what an attack pattern looks like and uh, make an alert. Or if the attack is unknown, using artificial intelligence to to uh, generate an alert to say this looks like an attack, you need to look into it. So, if anything, I would say that's a lot with with the analysis and and um, uh, de- uh, detecting uh, attacks uh, in progress. And the big one would be being able to uh, look at logs from dozens of systems to detect when a threat, when an attack is about to occur. Um, There's a annual report by Verizon Secret Service and now dozens of other law enforcement agencies around the world. And the, the, the one finding that's consistent since they've started doing this, and I forgot what year they started doing this, 
is that there was evidence of an attack in the logs before it occurred. Hmm. That's interpreted a few ways. One is overload. You get so many logs that you become fatigued and you overlook something that's obvious. People aren't looking at logs. People may not know how to interpret the logs they're looking at. So we need systems that can help to you know, mitigate that issue when there, when there are signs that an attack is about to occur and we know what those signs are, then generate an alert. In the case of SolarWinds, you got a different issue. With SolarWinds, you have a, dev- a software program that you willfully installed. And now it's starting to do things like someone logs into it and sends data out. So there needs to be, you know, systems that can detect what this, what is the purpose of this application? Okay, should someone, should this application be connecting out to the internet randomly? Should someone be able to connect from the internet and type commands into this, this system? So it, it really requires cybersecurity professionals to identify all the assets in the organization, all the software, all the hardware, and what is its purpose? It's a big job. Um, we cybersecurity people are very nosy and we're not <laughs> nosy because we're trying to, you know, get in people's business and try to tell them how to do their job. We need to understand what their job is and, and what the privileges are that they need to perform that job so we can reduce the number of privileges, privileges that they have. Least privilege is the fundamental security principle, least privilege, um, giving someone only the minimal access needed to perform a task. Hmm. So thinking about large software companies and and all the different roles that you identified earlier within the realm of cybersecurity, are software companies doing enough to protect their users from all of the many threats? And and are companies, large companies that just use sophisticated software systems doing enough? So is is there more that that the large distributors like Microsoft, Apple are doing? And should there be more of just the corporations who use Microsoft and Apple software that they should be doing? Some companies are, yes. And then other companies are really selling ease of use, plug and play. That that has to stop <laughs> because there's ways to make it plug and play, easy to use, but providing fundamental security controls. If I plug in, if I have a an, uh, a, an IoT device, and other things, such as a thermostat that I can control from the beach <laughs> or from anywhere. When I plug in that <clears throat> thermostat or when I plug in my Wi-Fi toaster or Wi-Fi slow cooker, there should be a requirement that before I access the internet, I have to change the default password to something strong. I should have to change the username to something that's not the default because you mitigate a tremendous number of threats by changing the default credentials. And you can do a Google search. You can go to Google right now and type in default passwords for Wi-Fi routers. And I almost guarantee within three seconds, you're going to find websites that have a list of all the Wi-Fi routers that we know of and their default credentials. That's scary. And same thing with Wi-Fi routers at home. As soon as you plug in that Wi-Fi router, before you access the internet, there can be a simple code check to see has the default password change. If not, you cannot access the internet. The Wi-Fi routers just give people WPA2 
it, it's, it's strong. Uh, make people put in a 20 character password. People may get, you know, freak out about that. But think about this. I mean, honestly, how many times do you have to type in your Wi-Fi password on your devices? Yeah, yeah. Not, not that often. Right. <laughs> right. Just one time. So you, you put it in there one time and you forget about it. Software development programs and training courses, they should be imp- incorporating secure coding into their their programs. I mean, we, you know, let's take a, a language like C, C++. You know, one of the first things you learn is data typing. You learn the different um, data types, what the length, what the, you know, size of a, a string can be, size of a digit, for example. And then you learn how to input data into a system. Well, it's just a, really a matter of a, few, a couple lines of code that you can write once and use it multiple times. That says, okay, I'm writing a program. As a programmer, let me take a step back. Programmers have to understand that they control the program, not the person who's using the program. And if the programmer doesn't know what's going to be input into the system, they, they probably don't know that program very well or what or what that job very well or, that, or what, they're, what they're creating. So even if you're putting in arbitrary text into a text field, there are still very simple built-in functions you can use to ensure that safe input, that the data is safely inputted into a database, for example. And and I'm talking about a couple lines of code, maybe even one line of code to filter the data. And many programming languages have native functions that can be used to check data input. So when you type your username into a Google form, you type in your password into a Google form, there can be simple checks that are being done to ensure that the username is what's expected, that the password has been hashed um, or uh, or cha- uh, converted into a, a long string of hex characters um, before it's uh, being checked. So it, it, it's, it doesn't take a whole lot to teach secure coding. You don't have to send someone to a six-month class or a one-year class to teach secure coding um, concepts. So I would like to see all these training programs, all these online courses incorporate some secure um, programming concepts. And again, once you are writing web applications, um, PHP is my language of choice, for example. I have a, a bunch of functions that I've created over the years, and uh, I kind of do similar types of data input. I wrote that function, was this 2020? I wrote that function back in 2001 or 2002, when I first started writing uh, in, in PHP. And I'm still using those same functions to filter data. They've updated because the functions have updated, but I'm still using the same ones. I don't have to rewrite that over again. It's, I'm sorry to say, but it's kind of that simple um, with, with filtering input, for example. So a lot of these companies should be incorporating these basic and fundamental principles of secure coding. Um, that kind of go. This question kind of goes into new technology as well. When you have a, a new technology that people get excited about and companies start pushing it out before doing any really good, strong security reviews on it. And then it gets incorporated into all these products. And then security folks say, oh, that, there's some vulnerabilities here that, that can allow unauthorized modification of data or a denial of service when you lose access to a service. So we need to take time to incorporate security into the beginning of the software development lifecycle or at the beginning of the system development lifecycle. In my experience, 
when people use a product that has security built in by default, it's seamless. They don't even know that it exists. It's, that it's even there. It's when you have to incorporate security later is when users rebel or when people tend to have uh, uh, problems with the rollout or having to pull back on rollout and things of that nature. That makes a lot of sense. I'm wondering if you could leave our listeners with one tip that they could do today to improve their system security. So is there, if you just, if there was just one thing that you would like everybody to do, what would it be? I would like for people to understand the type of information they have on their computer and learn what the value of the information is, whether you have it stored or whether you transmit it. Uh, transmit it meaning you type it into a, a web browser or whatever. And I believe that can help people understand what security and controls they need in place. That makes now, a lot of sense. Now that's a, that's a, here's my caveat to that. There's the folks who say, I don't have anything anybody wants. Um, that's a dangerous attitude to have about cybersecurity because your lack of belief that you need privacy could invade on someone else's desire to have privacy. And people say that until something happens to them. Someone gets access to their computer. They put a key logger, which, which captures your keystrokes, and they get access to a bank account. They get access to the email or social media, and people have been embarrassed. I mean, let's look at it. Now, let's look at it this way. I could resign my job right now via an email, for example. Mm-hmm. Or people may say, oh, I don't have anything in my bank account anybody wants. Well, what an adversary wants is your bank account so they can put money in there and then move it into another account. And then it's going to come back to you. And if you can't explain how someone got your credentials, you're responsible for the amount of money that bank lost as a result of that transfer, for example. That's really interesting. I never thought about it that way. So as we wrap up, I'm wondering if there's anything you'd like to plug. Is there anything that you'd like to send our listeners to? And also, how can our listeners follow you on social media? Yeah, there, you know, there's, there's some really cool like news, uh, security news things out there that are written for um, non-technical people. Like the SANS News Bites, S-A-N-S, SANS News Bites, is a, I think it's either daily or weekly, I, I, I get it quite often, unfortunately, about various things going on in the industry and, and, and organizations that have been impacted by a specific security breach, for example. There's a new one <laughs> I also found called InfoSec Sherpa. And she does a nice roundup of the, you know, the things you may not hear about, about cybersecurity around the world. We'll and, put a link to them in the show notes. Oh, cool. <laughs> and uh, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at GNUGROW, G-N-U-G-R-O. And on Mondays, there's a Cybermentor Monday um, hashtag. And you can find me there. I typically responding to people who are trying to get into cybersecurity and help them find resources or people who can help mentor them in, in um, either just learning more about cybersecurity or folks who want to get into this as a profession as well. 
Well, we'll put those in the show notes as well. Dwayne, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. We think you've really given a lot for our listeners to think about and, and learn more about. Um, and we'd love to have you back on in the future to talk about more cybersecurity topics. Oh, yes. I would love to. Absolutely. Wonderful. Thanks so much, Dwayne. Well, thank you all. I really, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for joining us this week. We look forward to seeing you again next week. Rebecca, how can our listeners get in touch with us on Twitter? We're at Kopec Explains, K-O-P-E-C-E-X-P-L-A-I-N-S. And we want to also remind everybody to leave us a review on your podcast player of choice. It really does help with getting the knowledge about the show out there. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks for listening.